Theory Podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with my friend Zach. Hello, everybody. So today we're going to be asking the question, what makes a good commander? And by good, I don't just mean powerful, although that does factor into it. In my view, a good commander is one that leads to fun gameplay, provides direction for a deck, and adds to the diversity of the format. Good commander is interesting to play because it feels different from other decks, and it lets you feel like you're accomplishing something. You don't want a commander that frustrates you, that prevents you from playing, that doesn't work well with the inherent restrictions on commander or commander gameplay. If you wanted to boil it down to a single sentence, a good commander promises fun and delivers on that promise. So before we get into the details of what that means and give you some more concrete examples, I want to just very quickly talk about our Patreon page. So Commander Theory recently launched its Patreon page, which means that all of you listeners can now start directly supporting the show and get access to some sweet rewards. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a patron and do things like vote on what sort of content you'd like to see, get a shout out in the show's credits. If you're willing to give a little bit more, you can join our Discord server. You can get one-on-one deck advice. You can get your questions answered on the podcast and even more. So check us out at patreon.com slash commandertheory and become a patron today. If you're on a tight budget and you can't commit to becoming a patron, you can also help us out by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps other potential listeners find us so we can grow our listener base and invest some more time and money into the podcast. So if you get a chance, give us a review or check us out on Patreon. I want to jump right back into our topic for today. The first thing I want to address in what makes a good commander or what prevents a commander from being good is you don't want a commander that is focused 100% on what your opponents are doing. With the exception of commanders that hose creatures, like say Vassara the Dreadful, commanders that only focus on what your opponents are doing aren't especially fun. So hosing creatures, that's kind of a reasonable exception because creatures are everywhere in this format. Yeah, true. (laughs) But... If it's something like Glissa Sunseeker that narrowly targets one subset of cards, like it just might not happen in a game, and then your commander doesn't do anything. So these kinds of commanders, they don't really offer much direction for a deck because there's no like hoop to guide your deck building. There's no yeah. clear, you are supposed to be doing this. These are the kinds of things that will help your strategy. Those decks kind of tend to default to good stuff. Yeah, so we've kind of talked about this before, but uh, Lavinia Azorius Renegade from Ravnica Allegiance. So Lavinia is a 2-2 for white and a blue, and each opponent can't cast non-creature spells with converted mana costs greater than the number of lands that player controls. And whenever an opponent casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. This is a very narrow hoser and i think we mentioned some of the interactions before there are some very like niche interactions uh you can lock opponents out of the game with like knowledge pool or omen machine or you can uh break symmetry on dream halls something like that so dream halls the classic it's an enchantment that lets everyone discard a card to cast a spell from their hand for free it's a share a color so there aren't really many opportunities to build around her because you don't know what your opponents are going to be doing. Like, mm-hmm. you don't know if they're going to be doing something unfair, which is kind of what she's here, like, she's built to stop. Um, and if you don't draw one of the pieces of these, like, interactions, like these little combo cards, then you're kind of just running a vanilla creature as your commander. So if unless your opponents are really trying to cheat costs and ramp into huge spells, like, she just doesn't do that much. I've got a bold prediction here. Mm-hmm, yeah. 
Okay, it's not a bold prediction to say that I think there's going to be a Nicol Bolas Planeswalker in War of the Spark. Yep, yep. But I think he will be exactly CMC7. Okay. And I believe that because emergency powers, that's the limit on his number. Oh, okay. And then okay. you can see like the Bolas horns there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my prediction. I think we're going to get CMC7 Bolas in War of the Spark. You heard it here first. Mm. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> Jumping back into it. Yeah, do you want to talk about like a good way that they could have made Lavinia a little bit better? Yeah, so a better template for designing commanders is the hoop and the reward. So, for example, like with Arcadia's Sabbath, whenever a creature with Defender enters the battlefield, draw a card. So the hoop there is got to be playing a bunch of Defenders for his ability to do anything. And the reward is drawing a card. That's a pretty common reward. Yeah, yeah they do that a lot. Um, that design, it tells you you are going to commit to this subset of cards. And there's like an implicit promise that the reward will be good enough to bring the deck sort of up to par with mm-hmm. good stuff. Yeah. You're going to be doing something narrower, but I'll subsidize it and make it so that you're not losing out by like narrowing your focus. Yeah. And honestly, like, we're going to talk about this a lot, but that is most commanders that people like a lot. They're the ones that really push you to build around them and, like, really reward this, like, gameplay that isn't just the normal magic that we see in 60 card Mm -hmm. or, like, value fest or trying to get as many two-for-ones as possible. It's the really fun interactions. The one kind of problem that can sometimes occur, though, with the hoop and reward. I think that hoop and reward is like a really good template for designing commanders. But there could definitely be a problem if the reward isn't worth jumping through the hoop. An example of this would be like Lyra Dawnbringer, who encourages you to run a bunch of angels in your deck to make use of her ability which gives angels you control plus one, plus one on lifelink. But that's not really a good hoop. So for those who might need some refresher, Lyra is a five mana, five, five flying first strike lifelink for three and two white and has other angels you control get plus one, plus one and have lifelink. Very efficient beater, not very efficient tribal lord. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's a ton of powerful angels in the format. Angels being an iconic, they have like a ton of fans but they tend to be a lot more expensive than just the best white creatures in general. So given that white has some pretty hard time ramping effectively, we've recently got Smothering Tithe, but like that being just a random card in your yeah. white deck doesn't necessarily help That's as much. That's not indicative of yeah. white's suite of cards. Yeah, exactly. So it just makes it so that Angel Tribal isn't going to do better than just like curving through your 5, 6, and 7 drops on turn 5, 6, and 7. Mm-hmm. Angel Tribal really needed something else if it was actually going to be a reward for the hoop to jump through. Like, the fact that this is a banner that says angels on it is kind of uh, misleading just because of the power level. There's so many board wipes in Commander that if your game plan is, I'm going to cast one beater per turn, (laughs) Commander's just going to tear that kind of deck apart. Mm Mm-hmm. Lyra really needed to have a reward that made up for the weaknesses of angels, Mm -hmm. like being expensive like dying to removal yeah yeah and so it needed to like make up that gap in between the best white creatures and only angels yeah and it really failed to do that which is so sad because like angel tribal is something that people want and people are building this deck angel tribal if you look at the data if you look online if you go to edia trek if you if you just look at her because she says angel she's finally a mono white angel commander (laughs) (laughs) but there isn't actually a reward for building around her and i think that people kind of picked up on that because she's not 
not as popular as you would expect. Yeah, um, the Angel Commander to be. Uh, as of the time of recording, there's only 83 Lyra decks on yeah. EDH Rec. <laughs> Definitely not one of the standouts of Dominaria. No, yeah. I mean, she is for the fact she's a Baneslayer, mm-hmm. but not for the fact that she is a good commander in any way, shape, or form. Another thing that determines whether a commander is a good design is a good commander has exactly the number of colors it needs to get access to enough cards to make it work, to mm-hmm. do the thing that it's trying to do. Yeah. And I think you've got some examples on both sides of like what a commander with too few yeah. and too many colors looks like. So too few colors is Tetsuko Umazawa Fugitive. Tetsuko is one and a blue for a 1-3. She is a human rogue, and she has creatures you control with power or toughness. One or less can't be blocked. So it sounds really powerful. Sounds really cool. Um, the problem is that... <laughs> There just aren't enough saboteur effects in the identity and just mono blue to really like make a whole deck. So there's eight mm-hmm. Ophidian variants. There's some equipment that's pretty good, like Scythe Claw and Quietus Spike. There's some other strong saboteur effects. So like you get like Riptide and Trancer, which is pretty powerful. It's a morph. And when it hits them, you sack it and steal a creature. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. There's there's some pretty good effects but just to make a whole deck like once you get past like the 8 to 12 cool cards for the deck you just kind of end up either dropping off in quality drastically or just filling up the rest of the deck with good stuff and and that is so sad Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean really the big thing with tetsuko is that she feels like she should be black too yeah if she was black like i've seen a lot of people run her in um like rat colony list Mm -hmm. in in like a two color three color commander uh, that's basically a rat colony deck and then they have tetsuko too to do the alpha strike yeah Um, see that would be sweet yeah i wasn't even thinking of that i was just thinking of like virtus the veil yeah ebon blade reaper Mm -hmm. like these very low power creatures that just have devastating effect if they ever hit you yeah, exactly. And and obviously she works super well with those guys. So the fact that in a format where you're limited in the cards you can play based on the commander you pick, Tetsuko just never quite makes it as the commander. You really needed black or just some color to help mm-hmm. help fill out the deck. And that's pretty sad. But I think we have an example, too, of commander with a little too many colors. Yeah, I actually, I wouldn't mind talking about this one because yeah, yeah. I actually have this deck yeah. and play her. So our example of too many colors is Verena, Lich Queen. So she came out in Commander 2018. She is one white, blue, black for a 4-4 zombie wizard. Whenever you attack with one or more zombies, draw that many cards, then discard that many cards, you gain that much life. She also has the activated ability, pay two and exile two cards from your graveyard, create a tapped 2-2 black zombie creature token. I'm, I'm going to make the case that I think white doesn't need to be in this. I yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. Although there are a few white cards that synergize with Verena's abilities, like, for example, Anointed Procession works mm-hmm. pretty well with mm-hmm. her token generating ability. In general, the majority of white cards present in most Verena decks are just removal spells with no connections to yeah. the next theme. And I think we've got a really, a really great opportunity to see what the introduction of a third color of adding white to a zombie deck does to the composition of that deck yeah because before Verena we had Gisa and Geralf and that was kind of like the de facto blue black zombie commander yeah, for sure I think if you look on EDH rec more than 95% of Gisa and Geralf lists are zombie tribal 
So what I did is I took a look at the average Gisa and Grolf deck and just counted up the number of cards that I consider good stuff. So it has nothing to do with the zombie theme. It was like mana rocks or just removal or yeah, card Yeah, austere command, whatever it is. Yeah, if you do that, you get eight good stuff cards in the average Gisa and Grolf deck. And then if you look at Verena, vast majority of these decks, more than 85% are zombie tribal. And you look at that average list, the zombie tribal cards are generally the same. Like there's a huge overlap in the cards between the two decks. Mm -hmm. But what adding a third color did is it increased the number of good stuff cards in the deck from eight card slots to 15 card slots. Yeah. So even though there are one or two white cards that contribute to the deck's theme, it also just contributed a bunch of removal, like Anguish Stun Making, Swords yeah. to Plowshares, all that. And those cards pushed out the Synergy cards and made it so that this deck becomes that much closer yeah. to just being like the average Esper, Esper control deck. deck. Yeah. You can really see that in this example, adding more colors to the deck decreases the synergy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if there's no cards in that color that really contribute to the theme. Yeah, which happens fairly often. So I think this is a good example, like you said, of adding a color to a strategy that didn't need it. This is one of the problems me and Nick both have with the four color commanders is like you just end up with kind of a sloppy pile of mm -hmm. cards put together because it's just so hard to make a reward that pushes past the goodness of just having four colors open to you mm -hmm. and just the good cards and four colors. So you can go too far on pushing colors and putting colors into the commander. My goal, and I think the goal of like the format's designers, mm -hmm. should be to like promote card diversity. Make yeah. Make it so like the commander card pool is as big as it can possibly be. As mm -hmm. many cards as possible are viable in the format. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that if you design commanders with too many colors and drag them towards good stuff. Like, there is room in this format for just, like, a very tight blue-black zombie list. You don't need anything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. I think another good example of a commander that has too many colors is Najila, the Blade oh, Blossom. yeah. <laughs> so for sure. She is the five-color warrior commander. And unfortunately, like, there just aren't that many good blue warriors. Like, first off, yeah. <laughs> there's very few blue warriors in general. And then, like, the number of blue warriors that are good enough to see play in Commander is much, much smaller than that. So it kind of begs the question of, like, why does blue need to be in this deck? Mm -hmm. And if you look at her EDH rec list, like, all of the creatures, all of the actual warriors in the deck, none, none of them are blue. There are, like, zero blue warriors in that deck. It's all stuff like Bramblewood Paragon and Rushblade Commander yeah. and Mindblade Render and, and just all these great white, green, red, and black warriors, but there's like nothing in blue. One of the only blue warriors in the deck is like Sirak Dragonclaw. <laughs> Who's a three-color guy anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it really doesn't need to be that many colors. And unfortunately, like if you look at the top instance, 40% of these five-color Najila decks run Cyclonic Rift. That's just one card that <laughs> people are not really excited to see more of. Yeah. That didn't need to be in this deck if the designers had like a little bit more discipline. Yeah, it really looks like them out of all the cards. It's just blue counterspell. <laughs> yeah that people are putting into the list as opposed to anything really good or important that's another example where like they didn't design the commander in a way that would lead to the most fun gameplay and the most unique deck i want to stress that good commanders don't have to be powerful mm -hmm. but this is one of the few areas where like 
power and fun gameplay align. You don't want a commander that makes you wait until turn seven to start playing. Like some commanders need to be in play before you start doing your thing. Mm -hmm. And that can be okay. Talrand needs to be in play before he starts doing his thing. Yeah. And that's fine because you can get him down on like turn three with acceleration, turn four without, and then really start playing the game on turn mm -hmm. four or five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. It's also okay if a commander is expensive if they have an immediate impact the turn they come down. Mm -hmm. Like Baborg Most Enraged, he costs eight, but when he comes down, like he turns your entire hand into lightning bolts that cost zero mana. Yeah. So that's huge impact on the game, and you can really control things from there to the point where it's it's not that big of a loss if he died because it's like, okay, you kill my commander. I'm going to kill your entire board. Mm -hmm. I hope that was a good trade for you. I think that's acceptable, but a commander that doesn't come down early mm -hmm. requires you to have them in play before your deck can really do its thing and doesn't have an immediate impact on the board if a commander like checks all those three boxes, you're probably going to have a frustrating game. Yeah, it's not going to be super fun. If your commander is expensive like that, missing land drops can be extra frustrating. Mm -hmm. If they're expensive to begin with, then you're more likely to get priced out of them yeah. over the course of a game. And this is especially true in colors that don't have as much ramp. So red, blue, white yeah. tend to have these problems. What's a, what's a good example of a commander like this? So Firesong and Sunspeaker is a newer commander, but costs six mana. Um, and you're kind of just likely to get priced out because it's red and white. It's a four red white for a four six Minotaur Cleric. Red instants and sorcery spells you control have lifelink. Whenever a white instant or sorcery spell causes you to gain life, Firesong and Sunspeaker deal three damage to target creature or player. So if you haven't seen a Fire Song and Sun Superior deck, it's essentially like an Earthquake deck. Yeah. Like giving your Earthquakes lifelink and making it so that you wrath the board and gain like 30 life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really where the crux of the deck lies. That's where its yeah. power comes from. So a friend of ours plays it all the time and mm -hmm. he has a lot of fun when it works, but I also see him getting frustrated a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially if your meta has a lot of spot removal or wraths. Like once Fire Song and Sunspeaker cost like 10, mm -hmm. like 12, you're kind of just screwed for a long time because then you spend an entire turn, 12 mana, casting Fire Song and Sunspeaker. And then you have to look everyone in the eye and go like, is this going to survive? <laughs> Are you going to kill this again? You're not going to stop me from gaining 40 life, are you? Yeah. <laughs> Another quick example of this is I still have an Arjun deck. So Arjun the Shifting Flame suffers from six mana syndrome. It's a four blue-red for a 5-5 five, five flying Sphinx Wizard. And uh, whenever you cast a spell, you put the cards in your hand on the bottom of your library in any order and then draw that many cards. And there's just a bunch of goofy stuff you can do with this, but really the deck suffers from... Your commander costs six, and you don't have green or black mm -hmm. to, like, ramp you <laughs> out of of this. And, and yeah, people say, like, oh, there's mana rocks and stuff like that. But there are just games where you just, you're sitting there, and you're twiddling your thumbs, and you're drawing cards with blue to try and get to the mana rocks. As you're drawing cards to get to your mana rocks, the entire board is, like, ramped up and is playing their strategy. Like, it is not super fun. It can be really frustrating. And, again, like, when you miss your land drops, you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a situation very similar to Firesong and Sunspeaker where like the reward that this commander gives you in the same way that Firesong and Sunspeaker, you guys don't want me to gain 40, right? 
like Arjun the Searching Flame, like you don't want me to like kill you in one hit, right? <laughs> like you don't want me to like draw my entire deck with Niv Mizzet, right? Yeah, <laughs> like it, it's so obviously threatening. Yeah, <laughs> and so incapable of protecting itself. Yeah, it's so silly, and so obviously like Arjun dies all the time in the same way that our friends Firesong and Sunspeaker dies all the time, mm-hmm. and like when it goes off, it really goes off. But you kind of have to wonder if the juice is worth the squeeze sometimes there's another category we kind of want to talk to we've kind of talked about this on the show a few times i think we've talked about all of these on the show a little bit but this one is actually i think a really big one i feel like every year there's like one or two of these kind of commanders that comes out yeah this is definitely like the the worst example of them yeah another thing you don't want your commander to do is you don't want expensive activated abilities because then you end up spending all of your mana on that ability and you don't really get to play your deck and Mm -hmm. especially if it's like a really powerful activated ability you don't even care about the other cards in your deck anymore yeah yeah. like nothing in your deck is a more effective use of your mana than just activating your commander over and over so i think the kind of the king of this strategy for a long time has been geth lord of the vault so geth is a five five zombie with intimidate for four and two black so again a six mana commander and geth has x black put target artifact or creature card with cmc x from an opponent's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control tapped then that player puts the top x cards of their library into their graveyard let's say x is five so you pay six mana you reanimate a five cost thing from someone's graveyard they mill five and then next turn they just milled five so you can be like you know i'm gonna get that that uh contagion engine you got in there or i'm gonna get that uh dragon you just milled every game every turn you're just spending all of your mana on geth and so you never have to touch your own cards because <laughs> yeah. like you're beating your opponents with their own cards and you're like essentially drawing more cards along that axis by filling their graveyard from a card advantage standpoint why would you ever want to spend your own cards Mm -hmm. when you can just use your opponent's cards over and over and then if they ever somehow manage to kill geth or get out from under it then it's like well i still got these seven cards in my own hand that i guess i could start using yeah i guess i can start doing this now like oh you mean i can do more than play a land a turn Mm mm-hmm yeah, and so that just leads to hyper-repetitive gameplay. Even though Geth on the surface looks like, oh, it's like super high variance because you get something different <laughs> every time. Like, it's not mm-hmm. not really. Once the train starts rolling, like, maybe you milled them with Mesmeracorb or something to get started. And you go, okay, I'll hit your uh, Burnished Heart that you used. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now they mill three. Oh, cool, you get another Mana Rock. I'll get your Mana Rock. Mm-hmm. And then you go, okay, well, now I'm going to hit your creature. Because yeah. like it just, every it, game. The fact that he gets back artifacts yeah. is the, like, <laughs> the most heinous thing. Yeah. So you're like breaking even when you steal Soul Ring. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, hmm. Yeah, it's pretty heinous. Yeah, he feeds himself in multiple ways, mm-hmm. both by getting mana and by getting more targets. Yeah, and so Geth, just not a very big fan of this strategy. There's kind of one more category we want to kind of bring. Before now, we've kind of like kept it really high level, like probably no commanders should be this way. Yeah, But now we're going to drill down a little bit onto some specific archetypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk really quickly about Voltron. Yeah. 
So for Voltron, I'm sure you all know this by now, but it's all about dealing 21 commander damage and winning that way. With Voltron commanders, there are a couple necessary characteristics. In order to be an effective Voltron commander, you either want an extremely high power to cost ratio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or two of the following abilities. You want either haste and or evasion and or some sort of protection, hexproof, indestructible, regeneration. Those are like the characteristics you're looking for in a Voltron commander. And you'll notice that like the most popular, the most iconic Voltron commanders all follow that rule of either Mm -hmm. having high power to cost or having two of those really important abilities. Yeah, I mean, a classic one is Rafik of the Many, who just on surface level deals eight or more damage per swing for four mana. Rafik has been kind of a Voltron guy for, I don't know, since... I would think both of us have been playing the format this yeah, whole time. Yeah, 10 years. Zergo has haste, indestructible on your turn, 7 power for 5 mana. So you really only need 3 Zergos mm-hmm. before someone's dead. And there's so many ways to expedite that. There's very silly things you can do once Zergo's done. Boom. Double cleave, you can wrath. You can, like, if Zergo's there, you can just be like, all right, wrath, like, yeah. hit you. <laughs> Doesn't matter because he's indestructible on your turn. Ural also, the Miststalker, has hexproof, and the power just goes off the charts because not only are you putting auras on him that buff him Mm -hmm. he gets buffed himself for every aura on him so you end up with this gigantic hexproof guy that just can swing in Mm -hmm. it's pretty nuts beat down yeah and then sagarda classic has flying hexproof you can't sack your stuff so she's just this thing that sits there Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's really hard to interact with and our last example really is just Skitherix, who, again, now he's flying, uh, evasion, uh, regenerates, uh, only has to deal 10 damage to kill someone. And he has haste. And he has haste, yeah. So just all of these, as you can he see. checks all the boxes. Checks every single box. It's something to look out for when you see a new set and you see a commander that you think is Voltron. Well, you should be like, oh, well, do they fit the criteria? Like, what what do I need to give them to make them a good commander? And if it's too many things, mm-hmm. then it's probably not worth it. If you're like, oh, well, they'll need haste. Oh, and they're really fragile, so they need protection. Oh, and they only have two power and they're four mana, so that's probably... It, it gets pretty bad pretty quickly. Yeah, it's a good metric for determining whether cards will make a good Voltron commander. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, Akiri Lineslinger. I yeah. was so <laughs> disappointed with her because, like, yes, she can grow bigger if you have a ton of artifacts, but she starts off with zero power, and then neither of her combat abilities are Super like, relevant. Are relevant. Yeah. It's like first strike and vigilance. That's not going to help me get through. Mm-hmm. On that kind of axis, we have kind of some guidelines for like non-Voltron aggro, which is also a deck that exists in the format. Yeah. So for non-Voltron aggro, I'd say the number one most important thing is just granting haste to your other creatures. Yes. <laughs> uh, Commander has tons of board wipes and waiting a turn cycle to turn like your lethal force sideways is just begging your opponents to cast a board wipe. Mm-hmm. Haste granting, it allows you to surprise your opponents. You can get in a big hit before they have an opportunity to respond. Being able to get in with haste before their sorcery speed answers turn online is hugely important. Yeah, very beneficial. So what are some examples of non-Voltron aggro commanders that really make good use of their haste granting? Yeah, so we have a familiar name if you've been listening the last few weeks, Xenagos, God of Revels. Xenagos is a 6-5 god, 3 red-green, indestructible. 
is not a creature unless your devotion to red and green is seven or more. And then at the beginning of combat on your turn, another target creature you control gains haste and plus X plus X where X is its power until end of turn. Xenagos gets around this aggro problem in a few ways. One is it grants haste, so you put something down and it swings in. The second is that you really only need one big guy. <laughs> you just need one big boy to come in there, like double its power and hit them. A Malignus or an Ignition Team or Hydra Omnivore. You just need one big guy to get in there and hit really hard. And then if they Wrath, if they kill it, you play another big guy and you just keep going. You, mm-hmm. you keep playing your big guys and it, it really makes it so that you... Don't end up with inherent card disadvantage for playing an aggro strategy because a lot of times decks will only have wrath, so they'll mm-hmm. trade a wrath for your big guy. Yeah, it always forces the one for one trade. Yeah, if you already have a malignus on the board, you're not going to cast your hydro omnivore. Yeah, yeah. What's the point? He's going to hit someone for forty. So Xenagos really good at getting around that. Another one that has actually impressed me a lot. Well, I wasn't sure how good he would be until we saw him in action, but mm-hmm. Brutoclad Telcor Engineer from the last commander set, it's four blue red for a four four artificer. He's a legendary artifact creature. Uh, he has creature tokens you control have haste. And at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a 2-1 blue mirror artifact creature token. Then you may choose a token you control. If you do, each other token you control becomes a copy of that token. Really interesting gameplay. You make a bunch of tokens of various things, and then once Brutoclad is down, you get a new one. All your tokens have haste, and they all become whatever you want them to be. If you want your like 1-1 servos to become treasure, they do that. If you want your treasure to become 5-5 sphinxes that you made a copy of, they do that. Like It doesn't matter what the token is. So this guy gives your guys haste, is does something, the turning comes down. And tokens are cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tokens don't cost you a whole card a lot of the time. In the same way that Xenagos kind of subsidizes by just you have one big guy. Like just having a bunch of tokens and or having things that produce tokens can usually stick around through wraths. So maybe mm-hmm. you have an artifact that does it. Uh, a trading post is a good example. You just make goats, mm-hmm. something like that. Like you, there's things that can continually spit out tokens that aren't as vulnerable as just a creature. And also, like, if you have a spell that produces tokens in mm-hmm. large enough quantities that they force someone to answer with a wrath, mm-hmm. if you ever get to the point where your aggro deck is trading one for one mm-hmm. with your opponent's board wipes, like, that's where you want to be. Yeah. You don't want people to, like, make up their card advantage by, I'm going to play one Wrath of God and get eight cards off of you. Yeah. Good luck coming back from that. Yeah, yeah. So both of these commanders kind of, like Nick said, subsidize that. You end up, in a lot of ways, just maybe trading one for one for your opponent's answers, but they had to answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They had to answer the big guy swinging in or the army of flying creatures that you copied from someone, something silly like that, Mm -hmm. a kiki-jiki token, something. So it's pretty fun. It's pretty interesting. But that, in general, is kind of all the points we wanted to get to today. If you want to design your own commanders, I think these are good tips for you. Mm-hmm. If you want to evaluate new legendary creatures, this, this is like a really handy guide mm-hmm. for understanding, like, is this something that is going to make a splash in this format, or does this have oh, yeah. problems? Yeah, deck builders, like, especially getting to meet more people through, like, the Patreon and, and just online, uh, seeing how many people who listen to the show are interested in deck building and mm-hmm. crafting, like, that is super awesome. I think this episode can be a tool to evaluate 
evaluate kind of what you want to do with a commander if that is good enough to push forward with with mm-hmm. the, a certain build or something like that. And on that note, I think we have some Patreons to thank. Yes, absolutely. A special thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are Bradley Pullen, Gustav Nyland, Ryan White King, Mark Tranquilli, Eamon Schofield, Addison Sage, and Elvis Lai. Thank you all for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon patron, please go to patreon.com slash commander theory and check it out. You can join for as little as $1 a month. So thank you guys. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, I am at commander theory on Twitter and Tumblr. If you want to reach Zach, he is at fat Bartleby on Twitter and Tumblr. The opening song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check him out on SoundCloud. We'll talk to you guys next time. 